take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. Matthew in chapter 10. We continue on our journey through this wonderful Gospel, allowing the Spirit of God to unpack it for us and apply its glorious truths to our life. And this morning we find ourselves in verse 24 through verse 31. Let me read this passage for you as the Lord is speaking to his apostles, preparing to send them out amongst the wolves. And we have learned thus far about his model for ministry and the perils of ministry. And now this morning he will enlighten us as to the marks of a true disciple. Beginning in verse 24 of Matthew 10. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher and the slave as his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very numbers of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus, after he had risen from the grave, gave his 11 disciples a glorious task and therefore one that came to all of us. It's one called the Great Commission. You're familiar with it in Matthew chapter 28. And in that great commission, he told them to make disciples of all nations and to teach them to desert, to observe all that I have commanded you. And as we begin to understand this text this morning, let me ask you, do you consider yourself a disciple of Christ? And if the answer is yes, what reasons would you put forth that would validate such a claim? What characteristics of your life would really prove that indeed you are a disciple of Christ? In our culture, many people would say such things as, well, I believe in God. Well, that's great. However, in James chapter 2 and verse 19, we read, you do well believing in God. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So in other words, believing in God is certainly part of it. But that in and of itself does not necessarily prove that you are a disciple of Christ. Others might say, well, I've made a profession of faith. Well, that's great. And hopefully that profession is genuine, but not all professions are. 
The Lord made that clear in Matthew 7. So what else would you put forth that would validate your claim that you are a disciple of Christ? Well, I can remember when I had a time of decision, when I asked Jesus into my heart. Well, that's wonderful. And that may have been the time when you truly came to know Christ. But remember the words of our Lord in Luke chapter 8 and verse 13. He said that some will receive the word with joy and still have no root. Those who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. So what else might you put forth as evidence of your discipleship? Well, I'm actively involved in my church and in ministry. Well, you know, that is wonderful. And there again, that is something that is noble, but it doesn't necessarily prove the genuineness of your faith. Remember those in Matthew 7 and verse 21 who will say to the Lord on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Or maybe you're like a lady that I recall who said to me when I was making some of the same queries. She said, well, I just don't think it's right for us to question our faith. And I remember saying to her, well, madam, I suggest you take that up with God. Because in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we read, test yourselves. To see if you are in the faith, examine yourselves or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Well, folks, the truth is, Jesus tells us in numerous passages and other texts throughout the New Testament that we can discern whether or not we are truly possessors of Christ and not merely professors of Christ. And we can do that by looking at the spiritual fruit that we bear. Now, certainly, I'm not going to take time and go into all of it, but may I summarize it? It would be things like a devotion to God's glory, a deep love for God, repentance from sin. You will see a pattern of genuine humility in a person's life, a selfless love, a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness. Frankly, a love for the word of God and an appetite for it. Separation from the world, obedience to the Lordship of Christ, a genuine passion to commune with God in prayer, measurable spiritual growth, a commitment to personal evangelism, those types of things. And frankly, today, as we examine our Lord's tender yet straightforward words describing the marks of a true disciple, we are going to learn much more about the implications of what it really means to be a disciple of Christ. And over the next couple of weeks, we will see these characteristics of true discipleship being unveiled for us so that we can measure our life against the divine standard for discipleship. Frankly, a much needed exercise in our shallow, schmaltzy, sentimental evangelical culture that accepts every profession as genuine and assumes every ministry to be anointed by God himself. In verses 24, actually through the rest of the chapter, the Lord Jesus 
graphically describes six telltale characteristics of genuine discipleship. We will only be able to look at two of them this morning, but let me give all six of them to you. First of all, a genuine disciple will submit to the Lordship of Christ. Secondly, he will fear God more than man. Thirdly, he will publicly confess Christ as Savior and Lord. Fourthly, he will value Christ more than family. Fifth, he will value Christ more than his own life. And sixthly, he will value eternal, not temporal reward. And my sincere prayer is that all of us will manifest these virtues in our service for Christ. Let's look at the first characteristic that the Lord gives the apostles as he prepares to send them out. And that is the need to be completely submissive to the Lordship of Christ. Again, verse 24 and verse 25, he says, The disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher and the slave as his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. Friends, here Jesus is reminding them that he is their Messiah, he is their teacher, he is their master, and thus he deserves absolute obedience, he deserves unwavering submission. And he points out the need for us to be like him. In Luke 6 and verse 40, Jesus said, everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. In other words, a true disciple is going to gradually become more conformed to the image of Christ. People will look at his or her life and see more of the Lord Jesus in that life. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6, we read, The one who says he abides in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And friends, let me ask you, is it the desire of your heart to be like Jesus? And if the answer is yes, let me ask you something else. How's it going? How's your progress? Are you noticeably more like Christ today than you were, say, two years ago? Frankly, let me help you answer the question. If you have no real appetite for the word of God, if it's kind of boring to you and you have no desire to immerse yourself in it, to meditate upon it, to bring your life to it, to bow before it. Don't kid yourself, you're not growing in Christ. And therefore, you will not be in subjection to the Lordship of Christ, because, dear friends, the metamorphosis of transformation only comes as a result of the renewing of the mind, Romans 12, 2. And even as Jesus said to the disciples in the Great Commission, we are to be taught to observe all that I commanded you. And frankly, you can't do that unless you humble yourself before the voice of Scripture and then obey what you hear. Peter said it well, obviously, as the inspired apostle in 1 Peter 2 and verse 2, that we are to be like newborn babes longing for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. 
Let me put it very practically. Those who claim to be disciples of Christ and yet have no desire to really know what the master would have them do, much less do it, is merely a withering vine and will bear no fruit. Notice what the Lord says. A disciple is not above his teacher. In other words, a learner doesn't know more than his teacher. You see, we don't have the spiritual wisdom of Christ. And that's why we need to be growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And those who are apathetic, and you just have to examine your own heart here, folks. If you're apathetic or you're indifferent toward the word of God, then basically what you're saying is, you know what? Lord, what you have to say is really, frankly, a bit boring to me and it's, it's unimportant. I, I know all that I need to know and you really have nothing more to teach me. Folks, that is an insult to the teacher. But he continues to build his case and he says, nor a slave above his master. And certainly a slave serves the master. In this case, the master is the sovereign ruler of the universe. So the would be disciple who has no desire to sit at the feet of the master to learn and has no desire to obey. Is not a true disciple. Is that fair? It's very clear. You see, dear friends, Jesus is asking for our full allegiance. And when we give it, we will grow into Christ likeness, knowing that, according to first John three two, someday we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. How I long for that day. Friends, ask yourself, do you really want to be like Jesus? Is that really a passion of your heart? You know, it's very popular to see these little wristbands and shirts and hats that say WWJD. What would Jesus do? And you know, whenever I see that, I think, you know, that might be a little bit trite, but I, I hope they understand that in any case, what Jesus would do is very clear in the Bible. What Jesus would do is the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is clearly delineated in the Word of God for us. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What would Jesus do? He'd do the will of the Father. We're to pray that it would be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is it done in heaven? How is the Father's will done in heaven? Very simply, it is done perfectly. It is done instantly. It is done completely. It is done joyfully for the glory of God. And I hope people understand that when they wear those little things. But folks, even though that's the case, very often we as Christians that claim to be disciples of Christ and claim that we desire to submit to his lordship, in fact, do things that are very different I see people, for example, that claim the name of Christ, and yet they're clueless about Bible doctrine. They have no appetite for Scripture. I'll see people who claim to be Christians living in immorality. I see families where the roles are reversed and the husband is some pusillanimous wimp running scared of his wife. And the wife being some dictator or turning it around and the husband is some demanding tyrant and the wife is running scared of her. Or you'll see Christians serving the God of materialism or having 
No desire at all to evangelize the lost. People that are angry with God, unforgiving, proud, gossips. I even see, and this is something that is sad that I see even at this church at times, Christian women who dress immodestly, who dress in a disgraceful way, and even in inappropriate ways given their body type. Slovenly get-ups with no sense of propriety or common decency, wearing attire that is both unflattering and worldly. Folks, the point is, as Christians, we have to constantly be examining our lives because we can, in our hearts, say, well, you know, I really want to be a disciple of Christ, and yet on the other hand say, but there are certain things in my life that I simply refuse to submit to. So the question is, are we really measuring our lives with God's standard? Or is it our own standard? Are we disciples and slaves who are passionately committed to becoming more and more like our teacher and like our master? And that is the Lord's emphasis here in this text. But notice the logical conclusion that Jesus draws in verse 25. He says that they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. In other words, what he's saying here is if you want to be like Jesus, be prepared to be treated like Jesus. Let me explain this. See, Jesus is adding another figure here to help help us grasp his point. Not only are we to be disciples or learners learning from our teacher and slaves that lovingly submit to our sovereign master. But he adds another figure here of, of the head and the family and so on. We are to be like family members who should not expect to be treated better than the head of the family. He uses an interesting term here, Beelzebul. That is a reference that the Jews of that day would have understood very clearly. A reference to the ancient Canaanite deity Baal. In ancient Ugaritic literature, Zebul, Z-B-L, means prince. And Zebul, B-L, is a designation for the god Baal. And, of course, he, throughout the Old Testament, is the prime antagonist against Yahweh. And if you study the etymology of that term, you'll see that Beelzebul was even called the Lord of the Flies. And later, that was changed to even the concept of the Lord of the Dwelling. You see, Zebul, interestingly enough, in Hebrew, is the term for dwelling or abode. And if you examine the Old Testament usage of that particular term, as well as the Dead Sea Scrolls and even early rabbinic literature, you'll see that Zebel was a reference to one of the seven heavens. And so the point is simply this. Jesus is using this phrase or this term, Beelzebul, as a reference to the evil one, as a reference to the chief devil, to Satan himself, designated in Ephesians 2 as the prince and the power of the air. So Jesus is using a term that is, that is a well-known epithet with the Jews. They understood this to be a reference to Satan. And he also used it because, as you will recall, the Pharisees had accused Jesus of casting out demons by the ruler of the demons in Matthew 9.34. And also in Mark 3.22, we read, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. So the point is simply this. Jesus is telling the apostles, 
in all of us that if the religious elite slandered and maligned me by calling me Satan, expect them to treat you in the same way. It's fascinating, isn't it? Islam considers all non-Muslims to be infidels, part of the great Satan. And we have seen this down through the history of the church. True Christians being killed because they were considered demonic heretics. It's estimated that Roman Catholicism has killed somewhere in the neighborhood of 260 million people over the years that are true Christians. In fact, in John 16, beginning in verse 1, Jesus warned the disciples of the enormous hostility of the religious world as they oppose the true gospel and those who preach it. And in that text, he says, these things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. By the way, Paul was a great example of that before he was transformed by the power of Christ. Remember, he thought he was serving God by killing Christians. That text, by the way, goes on to say that all these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. By the way, earlier in that same section of Scripture, beginning in John 15 and verse 18, here's what the Lord says. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Dear friends, if you truly commit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, your life will indeed bear the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And that will happen even in the midst of great trial. And certainly this is a glorious life indeed to serve Christ and submit to His Lordship. But please hear this. The more you become like Christ, the more the world will hate you. You may recall the story of that martyred missionary, Jim Elliott. He wrote the following words in his diary soon after he graduated from college as a young man. Here's what he said, and I quote, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life that I may burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. And soon thereafter, in the prime of his young life, the Lord answered that prayer in a way that I'm sure he would have never anticipated and in a way that we could not fully understand or cannot fully understand. When in the jungles of Ecuador, the spear of an Aukan Indian ended his life. You know, folks, this may not be what God has for you or for me, but the question is, are you willing to serve him? If it is, are you willing to serve him come what may? That is the heart of a true disciple. Before 
he died, Jim Elliott made this statement, and I quote, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Young people, let me ask you, are you willing to obey Christ even if it causes you to lose your popularity with your friends? Men, are you willing to obey Christ even though it might cost you money or forfeit some pleasure? Ladies, are you willing to follow Christ even if it means you must change some dishonoring, life-dominating sin in your life? So, Jesus reminds them of the importance of a willing submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the first mark of a true disciple of Christ. The second one is in verse 26 through verse 31. And that is, a true disciple will fear God more than man. Notice again the text, verse 30, or 26, Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Now remember, he has already told them that he is sending them out like sheep into the wolves. And we've discussed that in great length. And so it's important for them to hear this again. And in verse 31, he says, therefore, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. And he's, as you will recall, has talked about the importance of fearing him more than man. You know, I've heard many Christians say, well, I'm just thankful we don't experience much persecution for our faith here in the United States. You know what? I would agree with that. It could be a whole lot worse. And it is much worse in many other places. So that is a true statement. However, dear friends, please hear this. You try telling your family members and your friends the true gospel of Christ. And you'll see how quickly the persecution will mount. You tell them that apart from Christ, God is your worst enemy. You tell them that because of your sin, God will judge you eternally unless you repent. And confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And that He is the only way. You tell them. And you'll understand persecution. You know, it's interesting. Many people use, and appropriately so, John 3.16 when they evangelize. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, that's a wonderful truth. And you know... When most people hear that, that's not very offensive to them because it emphasizes the love of God and rightfully so. But folks, think of this. Look at the rest of the text. Use that in your evangelism. You'll see how quickly the reaction turns. Verse 18 goes on to say, he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. In other words, unbelievers are awaiting divine judgment because of their unbelief. Add that in the mix of your evangelism, which is the truth of the gospel. Now, I'm not saying be needlessly abrasive, but I am saying be faithful to the gospel. And you will experience persecution. And I'm not saying that to run out and to be persecuted and for you to run out and to suffer. But I am telling you that many times we even present the gospel in a way that's palatable and is kind of soft and warm and fuzzy because we don't want anybody to be upset with us. 
And that's not at all what the Lord commissioned the apostles to do. All too often, dear friends, we fear man more than we fear God. And so we water down the gospel with some sentimental dribble that emphasizes God's love with no reference to his wrath, no understanding of his law, afraid that we might offend. Seldom do we tell people to count the cost, that you've got to be willing to deny yourself and take up a cross. It's all because we fear man many times far more than we fear God. As Proverbs 29:25 tells us, the fear of man brings a snare. Oh, but I, I just don't want people to, to be mad at me. And, and certainly I don't want them to harm my family. Folks, I understand that. I know what it's like to be maligned and slandered and hated. I've had numerous people, and I've got several right now, that have threatened my life. I know what it's like to constantly be looking over your shoulder. I know what that feels like. It's scary. But I also know what Jesus said. Notice in verse 26 at the end, there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. In other words, he is the Lord. He's in control of all. He says, don't be afraid. I will someday expose the wicked. I will judge them. As well as I'm going to exalt and reward you for your faithfulness. The wicked are not going to go unpunished, dear friends. That is a great motivation to me to serve him. You see, we fight a battle that's already been won. Do we not? You know, someday, and I think about this many times. When I stand before the master, friends, I don't want to stand before him as some sniveling coward ashamed that was ashamed of the gospel. I don't want to stand before him knowing that I've run scared of all of those wolves who had absolutely no power to do anything to me unless the Lord gave it to them. So, dear friends, I would humbly ask you to pick up your sword and fight. Join in the battle for the truth. We serve the Lord of hosts. Don't be afraid. Join in the fray. The souls of men are at stake. He's going to reveal everything someday. And I find great comfort in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5 that when the Lord returns, it says, He will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Notice Jesus goes on to say in verse 27, What I tell you in the darkness... Speak it in the light. The darkness here is a figurative expression of the darkness of of referring to those divine truths that he discloses to us in the sacred closet of, of, of communion where the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. In other words, don't be ashamed to publicly proclaim the truth that I have disclosed to you in private. And he goes on, he says, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim... Upon the housetops. It's interesting that in the first century, it was common for Jewish rabbis to train their students by standing beside them when they were being questioned by their peers or when they were speaking and whisper in their ears things that they needed to know and how they needed to respond. An amazing thought. First Corinthians two and verse nine and following, we read about divine revelation and the inspiration of Scripture. And in that text, we read 
things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the spirit. You see, friends, he is the one that whispered into the ear of the apostles and the inspired writers. And he continues to whisper into our ears in the darkness of our own closets of meditation and Bible study. And in verse 13 of that text in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thought with spiritual words. You see, friends, it is only the Holy Spirit who whispers truth into our ears through the infallible record of divine revelation. And when he has done that, we are now, therefore, responsible to faithfully proclaim what we have heard upon the housetops. By the way, as a footnote, there's no room in Christianity for secrets, for secret rites and rituals and lodges and fraternal orders. There's no place for the blasphemies of things such as Freemasonry. There's no place for the, for just the initiated, some special elite that have the secret knowledge of God. Beloved, all of that is in the Word of God. He has revealed that to us. And we are to publicly proclaim it. And he goes on then to tell them in verse 28, And warned them, he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul. Destroy both soul and body, excuse me, in hell. In other words, he's saying, yes, indeed, the the wicked have the power to kill our body, but they cannot destroy the soul, the psuche, which is biblically the rational immortal, eternal, non-material center of our being that transcends the earthly. Don't fear them. They can't destroy that. Do not fear him who is. But he does say, but do fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. By the way, this is an important concept. The word destroy here does not mean extinction. It does not mean annihilation. It does not mean to cease to exist, as some would have us believe. And I want to camp here for a moment because I know some of you have recently been delivered from the deceptions of various cults that mock the biblical concept of hell. And certainly my purpose now is not to be exhaustive on that topic, but perhaps I can at least shed a bit of truth here for you. The Greek term that is used to describe the word destroy that the Lord uses here conveys the idea of bringing about profound and eternal ruin and destruction, a concept that is taught in numerous passages in the word of God. For example, in Second Thessalonians, chapter one, beginning in verse seven, Paul goes into great detail describing Christ as the coming judge and explains the extent and the duration of eternal hell. In verse 7 there, he says, The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty, now listen to this, of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. 
Dear friends, if destruction means annihilation, then this text and numerous others would beg for relevance. You see, annihilation can't be eternal because by its very definition, it means to become extinct, to cease to exist. You see, eternal destruction is an irreversible experience of conscious torment. We see this all through the Bible. It's hard for me to imagine how people miss it. In Isaiah chapter 33, verse 14, the prophet describes it as a place of devouring fire, a place of everlasting burnings. In Matthew chapter 13, and verse 42, Jesus says that he himself will judge the wicked. And in that text, he says, and I will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't sound like annihilation to me. In Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus describes what he will someday do and what he will say to unbelievers. And in that text, he says, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So back to this text, Jesus warns the apostles and therefore all of us, don't fear man, but fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Gine, hell, Gehenna, a term that was well known to the people of that day, referring to a valley there in Jerusalem, a garbage dump that burned continuously, a name of the place and the state of everlasting punishment. Used again in Mark chapter 9, verse 43, in Luke 12 and verse 5 and other passages. Folks, please listen to this. If I can get a bit theological here for you. I want you to understand this because I fear that many don't. You see, the souls of men bear the image of our eternal God. And they will, therefore, live forever, whether they are redeemed or not. The souls of men are immortal. There will be, according to Acts 24 and verse 15, the resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. There's no annihilation. Moreover, the eternal holiness of God demands both eternal punishment for sin as well as eternal blessing for those who have been justified by the atoning work of the Son, none other than the Lord Jesus, who became the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sin. You see, you cannot have eternal salvation without eternal damnation. You see, if I can put it this way, because sin violates God's holiness, the justice of God demands that the souls of the wicked should never perish, but rather endure the eternal punishments that are fitting for the violation of his infinite holiness. Beloved, if an eternity in hell could not expiate sin, how much less a payment could be extracted from wicked men if they were merely annihilated? You see, to deny the eternal punishment of a literal hell is to eviscerate the holiness and the justice of God, not to mention to violate the very clear teaching of Scripture Bottom line, Jesus is simply saying this, don't fear men, fear me. No doubt he was even targeting Judas that was standing before him. 
but certainly it was also a warning to all men who reject Christ in rebellious unbelief. You know, one of the most remarkable illustrations of such genuine discipleship and of Christian bravery was that that was illustrated during the 300 years of persecution that Christians endured at the hands of the Romans. Many of them would be singing hymns before they would go in with their families into the arenas. They would have they put skins upon them, animal skins with blood on them so that it would attract the wild beasts. And many of those dear people, saints that were committed as true disciples to the Lord Jesus, would sing hymns. And it was so offensive to the ears of the Romans that many times they would go in and cut out their tongues to silence their singing. But friends, for ten generations, for some 300 years, Christians refused to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, they were tortured and they were killed. And it's estimated that they dug approximately 600 miles of catacombs beneath and around the city of Rome to bury over four million bodies. And there was a common there, there is a common inscription over many of those tombs. It is that of the ichthus, the fish. Ichthus is the word fish in Greek, and it is an acrostic that means Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. But there is another common inscription over those tombs. And that is one that reads this. The word of God is not bound. You see, folks, that is the heart of a true disciple. What a powerful testimony of men and women and boys and girls who feared God more than they feared man. And then notice the Lord's tender words of comfort to them. In verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a sin, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? It's an interesting text. A cent, there's a reference to the smallest coin that was in circulation in that day. And it was actually one that could be used to purchase two sparrows, and they would roast these little sparrows as appetizers, a horse's d'oeuvres, as we would teasingly say here in Tennessee. And yet, the Lord goes on to say, and yet not one of them will fall. By the way, that term can be translated hop. Not one of them will hop to the ground apart from your father. What's he saying? He's simply saying this. Beloved, with such inconceivable omniscience and with such an intimate awareness of such an insignificant creature, how much more? Will I attend to the needs of my children who are being persecuted for my sake? And likewise, he uses another analogy here, the analogy of the hairs. Verse 30, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear. Interesting. I read that there's an average of 140,000 hairs on a human head. I would say mine used to be there, and some of you used to have maybe that many, but we're losing them. And here's the point with all of that. Again, the Lord is saying, if the Father knows the intimate details of such 
spiritually insignificant mundane matters, such as the number of our hairs, how much more will he involve himself in the affairs of those who are being persecuted, who are giving their blood for his glory? That's the point. Oh, child of God, don't you see it? With such amazing love and such incomprehensible omniscience and power, how could we possibly fear man more than we fear God? You see, a true disciple will fear God more than man. And whatever suffering we endure because of our love for Christ and for His glory, that will not go unnoticed. Indeed, as we've learned before in verse 19, that in the hour of our greatest need, the Spirit of God will even speak on our behalf through us. I want to close this morning with a stunning illustration that I read a number of years ago. An illustration of the convicting and transforming power of the gospel of Christ and the commitment of men who feared God and loved him certainly more than man. I want to read you this illustration from among the finest athletes in the Roman Empire. Nero selected a group called the Emperor's Wrestlers. Their motto was, quote, We, the wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O Emperor, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. The wrestlers were also soldiers and were often sent out on special military campaigns. On a certain mission in Gaul, which is modern France, many of the wrestlers were converted to Christ. Upon hearing the news, Nero ordered the commander Vespasian to execute any wrestler who refused to renounce Christ and swear religious as well as military allegiance to the emperor. The emperor's orders were received in the dead of winter as the men were encamped on the shore of a frozen lake. When Vespasian assembled the soldiers and asked how many were Christians, 40 men stepped forward. Hoping not to lose any of these fine men, many of whom were his friends, he gave them until sundown the next day to reconsider. But at the given hour, all of them still refused to renounce Christ. In order that they not die at the hands of their comrades, the commander ordered the 40 men to disrobe and walk naked out onto the ice. Throughout the night, the soldiers on shore would hear the 40 sentenced men singing triumphantly, 40 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. The singing grew fainter as morning neared and at dawn a lone figure walked back and approached the fire. He confessed that his faith was not strong enough to face death. When Vespasian then heard the faint strains of 39 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, he was so moved that he threw off his armor and clothes 
and marched out to join the others, shouting as he went, Forty wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. Let's pray. Father, as we examine the marks of true discipleship, I would ask that you would cause us all to measure our lives against your standard. And Lord, where we fall short, would you give us the courage to repent and to totally yield ourselves to your Lordship and to fear you and to love you more than we fear man and love this world. I ask this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior, our Master and our Lord. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.